A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. You are not in search of, by Martin Crucifix. There has to be a sort of killing, Tom Rowling. You're not in search of a gilded meadow, though here's a place you might hope to find it. The locals point you to Silver Bay, to a curving shingled beach where once I crouched, as if breathless, as if I'd followed a trail of scuffs and disappointments. And the wind swept in, as it usually does, and the lake water brimmed, and I knew the thrill of its mongrel plenitude as colours of thousands of pebbles like bright cobblestones slid uneasily beneath my feet. Imagine, it's here, I want you to leave me, these millions of us aspiring to the condition of ubiquitous dust on the fiery water one moment, then dust in the water the next, then there's barely a handful of dust compounding with the brightness of water, then near as damn it, gone. You might say this aloud, by way of ritual. There goes one who thought much of life, who found joy in return for a little gratitude before its frugal bowls of iron and bronze set out, then vanished. Then, however you try to look me up, whatever device you click or tap or swipe, I'm neither here nor there. Though you might imagine one particle in some stiff hybrid blade of grass or some vigorous weed arched towards the sun, though here is as good a place as any, you look for me in vain, the bridges down. Martin, where did this poem come from? It's very interesting reflecting on, on where poems come from. Um, some poems have a very simple sort of origin. Um, Rilke talks about a, a particular tree on a particular hillside mm-hmm. or a, an overheard conversation, something of that sort. This poem has a more mixed um, background to it, I think, partly because it, it is a poem which occurs late. It's the penultimate poem in, in a almost book-length sequence of poems. Mm-hmm. 
um, in my new book called Works and Days. So looking back, um, I managed to find uh, the notebook where the, the very first sort of scribblings for this poem occurred, and maybe we can talk about that later. But it does go back a number of years to the winter, really, of, of 2015, 2016, mm-hmm. And um, some of your listeners may remember that was a particularly stormy winter. Um, uh-huh. I think it was Storm Desmond. Um, I'm fascinated by the way in which we domesticate these, yeah, these yeah. terrible natural occurrences. Storm Desmond swept particularly across the north of England, caused terrible property damage and flooding. Um, and in particular in, in Cumbria in the Lake District, caused a great deal of, of damage. And I was up there in the spring of 2016. And the kind of uh, walks that, that I'd imagine us taking had to be completely rerouted or, or, or indeed completely abandoned because of these, these bridges being down. So communication was, was much disrupted um, and everybody's plans and so on were, were affected by this. Um, so that idea of the bridges coming down, which, which does make uh, a, a, an appearance in this particular poem, mm-hmm. was a very literal um, observation. At the time, I was um, experimenting with some a, a new sort of writing for me, really. I'd picked up, um, as I often do, I think, uh, in a secondhand bookshop, uh, a really fascinating book, an old Penguin Classics book, <clears throat> called Speaking of Shiva. Um, mm-hmm. And this was translations by A.K. Ramanujan of, in effect, medieval um, southern Indian lyric poems, which, which all addressed the god Shiva. Um, these poems are generally called Vakana poems. Mm-hmm. And I, I was interested in them because they were despite their sort of antiquity, really, they were, at least in the translations, wonderfully simple. Uh, The devices they used, repetition and refrain, and the range of emotion one might expect, kind of devotion and, um, you know, predictable emotions of that sort. But there was a great deal of anger and and bafflement and confusion about, you know, God's absence or, or what was being... Um, given to the the poets, and they these these Vakana poems always ended with a refrain which alluded to the god oh. in a particular way. I don't personally have a god, um, and it, it was a small step really for me to sort of realise that maybe the bridges being down might um, provide me with with the, the kind of repeated conclusion, and that's what happens in a lot of the. Um, poems in the book. Um, the other thing that was happening, of course, the, the great unmentionable in 2016 was the lead up to the Brexit vote. And yeah. as I'm sure with, with many of us, I'd never experienced such a divisive period amongst friends and family, work colleagues I'd, mm. I'd worked with for many years and I thought we had a, a, a you know a, a, a lot of shared values it turned out on this occasion we, we didn't and so on so that idea of communication breakdown yeah um the, the bridges that one normally crosses personally politically 
uh, and within a family were, were very, very powerful in my mind at the time. So a lot of that comes into the um, particular, say, the early sections of the um, sequence. I think what is happening in this poem is an attempt, perhaps, at some sort of resolution or perhaps a moving on mm -hmm. um, from that kind of um, conflict and division, which I saw all around me. Yeah. Yes, as we all did, sadly. The storm continued into the summer that year. Indeed, yes. And we seem to be still living with consequences. But <laughs> They're still rumbling on, yes. We should, we should keep off that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, and it's, but it's not just the UK. I know there's a lot of people listening in different parts of the world, and I think it's a, it's, sadly it's a bit of a pattern in other parts of the world too. I, I, absolutely. I think that the way in which <clears throat> particularly, well, I suppose particularly in the West, uh, divisions have arisen which, which seem irresolvable um, by conventional roots, the, the kind of dialogue that once took place seems not to be happening so clearly. Right. And so I'm curious, how do, how do you approach this as a poet? Because, you know, the, I've got the, the benefit of having read earlier in the sequence, you certainly don't approach it as the, the hectoring, arguing citizen. You know, you've, you come up with a very different kind of dialogue, different perspective on this. But I mean, how did, I'm curious, you know, how did you, maybe the citizens, with your perspective, your investment on maybe one side of the debate. What's the relationship between that part of you and then the poet who's, who's coming to speak about this? I think the poet um, in the sequence and, and indeed here is observing what is going on around. Um, perhaps not making quick judgments um, but I think this is the way in which a, a, a kind of literary precursor, if, if you like, like these Vakana poems can help you. Mm -hmm. um, so I, 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 I wasn't aware that I was making especially political statements, I think. Uh, although in retrospect, I, I think I am. Mm -hmm. um, what I was doing at the time in a, a way which a lot of your poetry writing readers will probably recognize, I was experimenting and trying out a new way of writing. So mm -hmm. these poems are very short. Um, they make an observation. They make great use of repetition. Um, I'm just looking at the notebook where original sketches were made and on the page opposite um i'm making use of one of these devices so just to read four or five lines from this mm -hmm. um i've got on the top of the page here between rod and line lip and kiss between brother and brother between mother and child town and country between money and wealth between north and south and it goes on so that mm -hmm. refrain that anaphora, simple repetition, yeah. really, um, of, of the between is something that I, um, I think I found in a, one of the Vakana poems, and I was simply trying that out. But what, what's interesting in, in what I've just read is um, 
the north and the south divide, of course, and, mm-hmm. and family divisions and, um, and, and so on, but also brother and brother. And the other, you know, you ask how, how does one write about these things? The other um, precursor, if you like, that, that lies behind the sequence and that sustains you as a writer in developing what, what is a longer sequence. It's, it's very hard to maintain belief in what you're doing, but to have a model like the mm-hmm. Vakana poems um, is very helpful. And this other model, um, which, which again, I, I, I think I just happened to be reading at the time, um, was uh, an ancient poem from, from the Western tradition, Hesiod's Works and Days, Mm-hmm. Um, and A.E. Stallings, who I think has just been elected to Professor of Poetry at Oxford University in the last yes. few months. Um, yes. she, she's come to prominence through that, I think. But she's a very good poet and a great translator. Mm-hmm. And she translated uh, Works and Days. And Works and Days, in the introduction she explains a lot of this, is actually based on a brotherly dispute Hesiod is in dialogue, dispute, conflict with his brother, um, who he gives the name Perses. And uh, Stallings observes that that's a rather peculiar name. Uh, It it perhaps means just something like waster or wastrel or (laughs) waste of space. Term of endearment for your (laughs) nearest and dearest, yeah. Um, So... In, in that little bit that I, I read there from the notebook, conflict between brother and brother was also sort of in my mind as, as <clears throat> many of these poems uh, develop. Okay, so can we zoom in maybe a little more closely on this particular poem? Say something mm. about where this one came from. You say it was later in the sequence. Mm. Mm. Um, the original scribble for <clears throat> this poem, there were, there were two moments which I have coalesced in the process of, of writing it. <clears throat> and the beginnings, I'll just read a little bit of this out. Um, top of the page, apropos of absolutely nothing, particularly except what was in my head at the time, I guess. Let's imagine it's late March, maybe April, Sunshine and showers coming north from the real lakes over the man-made one. Pine grove on Wren Crag. So the landscape is, is very specific. Interestingly, that landscape is around Thirlmere, mm-hmm. which um, many of you will know is, is one of the man-made lakes in the Lake District. The later poem is set very much in a specific place on Oldswater, which is one of the natural lakes on the eastern shore of Oldswater at Silver Bay, which is actually a a specific place there. Uh, A bit later on in the notebook, I seem to be revisiting the idea uh, of of sort of standing on on the shoreline but this is actually couched in the past tense. I once crouched for minutes on this beach. This is Silver Bay. Mm-hmm. And that 
takes me to the ultimate kind of location of, of the final poem. <clears throat> um, in both cases, I'd seem to have in my mind the idea of a, a scattering of ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, seems to me now to, to be a, a kind of um, killing of the self, of myself, really. I think this, is, <clears throat> this could be read, and, and one or two lines from the poem are clearly couched in the idea of, of kind of advice to my children as to where I might indeed find myself scattered in, uh-huh. in, in the future. Um, but this is, is, is a literal scattering of ashes, but obviously a, a metaphorical one. And that, that does explain the epigraph, the little quotation at the top of the poem from Tom Rawling. Um, very few of the other poems in the sequence have epigraphs. They all stand alone. Most of them don't really have titles. The, the title is the opening phrase of each poem. So this one is, is a bit unusual in having an epigraph. Tom Rawling was, is an old, was an old mentor of mine from a long while ago. Back in Oxford, I was a, a postgraduate at the time. Tom was running a workshop, uh, not a university workshop, but a public arts centre workshop at the old fire station mm-hmm. in Oxford. And Tom, Tom had actually taken over from the great poet Anne Stevenson, um, who was brought up in America, uh, came over to the UK, lived a long time in Wales, I think. Um, but Anne had been for a year or two in Oxford and had set up this workshop and was, um, had, had then moved back to Newcastle, I think. Tom took it over and he, he was an ex-headmaster and he ruled us with a rod of iron in the workshop. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he hadn't started writing until he'd retired from teaching at the age of 60. His background, he grew up in a very conservative, narrow-minded, he, he would himself have said, uh, farm in Ennerdale, in mm-hmm. Cumbria in the Lake District. So there are lots of Lake District connections that are coming out here. Tom, this quote is from a poem called A Sort of Killing. And Tom, way back in the late 70s, early 80s, quotes as an epigraph for his own poem, something from Isaiah Berlin, which, allowing for some of the kind of gender... um, presumptions of the time it reads society moves by some degree of parricide children on the whole kill if not their fathers at least the beliefs of their fathers and arrive at new beliefs so the the idea of death and, and and the killing of fathers and in my poem i think the killing of of previous selves if you like Mm-hmm. It's more to do with a moving on of values. And the values earlier in the poem, as we've discussed really, 
are very much the ones of division and mm -hmm. sort of egocentricity, self-centeredness, greed, um, as opposed to one of the key words for me always, but also in this poem, of course, to imagine that kind of moral imagination of um, escaping, if that's the right word, from the confines of the self to understand, to empathize, to um, reach out to others. So that, I think, is, is partly why this poem imagines the scattering of ashes. Right. So this is fascinating to me. Martin, because I'm I'm kind of laying this over my first reading of the poem, because you kindly sent me the proof of the book, and you said you were thinking of reading this poem. So I read this one first, and then I went back and read the sequence. But one of the th things I noted down on that kind of naive reading before I'd read any more of the sequence was I really homed in on the pronouns. And so the word imagine appears twice. And it's you know, you say in the original note, it began, let's imagine. But in the finished poem, that had separated out into you and I, hasn't it? Yes. You are not in search of a gilded medal. Straight away, that conjures up the question, well, who is you and who, who am I in relation to you? Yes. And then yes. you might, you might, there's a lot of provisional, hypothetical, kind of subjunctive type language in this. Mm. You mm. might hope to find it, imagine it's here, you might say this aloud. Um, however, whatever device, I'm neither here nor there, you might imagine again yes. before, of course, we get to the bridges being down. So there's a real sense I, I picked up, even at a first kind of naive reading without all that context of this is two people exploring a hypothetical space or maybe one person <laughs> hypothetically exploring it with somebody else. Yes, it really yes. kind of lifts the whole poem into this, this realm of, it's a bit like in the Lake Districts, when you walk up into the clouds, I, I guess, <laughs> yes, <laughs> into yes, the realm of good. possibility and, and hope, but maybe there's some anxiety there as well. Uh, absolutely. That's really interesting. Yes, yes, I think so. I mean, the you from the opening line is probably that uh, second person that poets often use when they're referring really to themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think, as I've suggested, um, this becomes, and I, I was sort of conscious as, as I was sort of drafting it, it was indeed becoming an address, perhaps, to my children about mm. um, future wishes. Um, and there's another poem fairly close to this one, which actually does address um, my children more more directly. So there's definitely that. But I, I really like what you're saying about the, the kind of provisional nature of this. Um, this is absolutely an act of imagination and of hope that the kind of division and conflict, which is so repeatedly kind of um, explored and, and discussed in the earlier poems. And as we've said, that refrain, the bridges are down, the bridges are down, all the bridges are down, is mm -hmm. what keeps coming back. Here, this is hope. Um, it's interesting you mentioned hope. In, in Hesiod's poem, 
it, there is the first appearance of the Pandora's jar myth, which uh, Pandora's jar was a gift from the gods to humankind. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the lid of the jar was, was uh, taken off um, and everything was lost. Uh, so we have to live, it's a bit like the fallen world in the Christian tradition, we have to live with what, we're, what we've got. But the one thing that lodged in the neck of the jar was hope. Huh. And that, that is very much what is, is driving this poem. The, the kind of provisional, the provisionality that you are responding to there for me, is, is also contained within the, the pebbles, the cobblestones sliding uneasily beneath my feet. We have to accept, and I, I think this is an argument against the kind of rigidity of self and egotistic insistence, um, that, that perhaps there is a simple solution to things. This way in the background here is Brexit and so on. There mm-hmm. is no simple solution. We have to work and improvise and continue to hope. And we have to walk into the lake upon these slippery cobblestones. But the cobblestones are colored, as the poem suggests, a plenitude. Mm. There is a richness, there is a, a set of possibilities, but not just one. And so that, that, that kind of subjunctive and, and provisional quality that you're talking about there, I think is absolutely, absolutely right, yes. And I guess I want to pick up as well on these, you know, the, some gorgeous phrases in here, like mongrel plenitude. Mm. And, you know, and that whole phrase, the lake water brimmed and I knew the thrill of its mongrel plenitude. Later on, you've got the condition of ubiquitous dust on the fiery water. Mm. And later, the, the handful of dust with a nod to Eliot, yeah. compounding with the brightness of water and so on. A lot of your poems have a lot of very everyday details like till receipts and Skype calls and, <laughs> and so on. But you don't do that in this poem. It's, it's much more kind of gorgeous and elevated and maybe what we might think of as traditionally poetic diction is was that a conscious choice or did the poem just find its way there i think it's partly in response to what is earlier in the poem as i said before observations of telephone calls traffic jams um noisy restaurants um hmm cappuccinos in in cafes yeah. and, and so yeah. on so that kind that kind of material is is very much there here yeah i i, I think like you're right there there is a more elevated sort of diction i think i think that's partly i felt i was able to give myself permission for that um particularly in the idea of of this being almost a ritual mm. um you know, when, when we scatter ashes, when we attend funerals and, and so on, there is a ritual quality to the language. And I, I felt that was possible here. Quite risky, as you say. That's not especially what I do. 
But I think, and I think here that that would be um, possible. The other thing <clears throat> to say is, of course, there is a phrase like "near as damn it gone." Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the the beauty and richness, the plenitude, the mixed. I mean, you mentioned mongrel. One or two people have queried whether I should be using a word like that in in this day and age. But I, I'm partly using it about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my own background is, is, is very mixed in, in various ways. Um, later in the poem, I think I'm imagining myself as that hybrid blade of grass. Mm-hmm. So any hint of a, a, a kind of purity of vision I'm, I'm arguing against, I think. Yeah. Um, my vision is, is hybrid, mongrel, mixed. But that, the point being, that makes it even more rich. And I, I, th- I think a way in the background here is, you know, again, Brexit discussions, continuing discussions about the nature of, of UK society, um, multiculturalism and and so on um is is not an irrelevant observation here i think yeah. uh, though i think a reader would not <laughs> immediately think of those things yeah it's lightly touched in yeah yeah and how did the form of this evolve how close is this to what you had in that original note i my approach to form i Ten I, poets differ hugely on this. I think my approach I would describe as organic. Mm-hmm. My early notes tend to be—I've used the word "scribbled" several times. Definitely scribbled, usually at high speed, so that I don't lose the moment or the feeling or, 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 or the, the slant of light or something that's in my mind. Um, they come out in a, something of a jumble and only later do I really begin to explore, I suppose, the possibilities of form. I think this one moved into these three-line stanzas, these triplets, if you like, mm-hmm. fairly swiftly. And I think I wanted this to be a fairly stately, ritualistic kind of movement through the poem, as as if a, a, a kind of an approach to a, a funeral or, or a scattering or, or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. The indentations, a lot of the poems make use of indentation. And, and again, I wanted to, I definitely wanted to disrupt the, the reader's experience really and, and, and to keep their eye moving um, swiftly from, from one thing to another. But again, this has quite a, f- this compared to a lot of the poems in, in, in the sequence and in the book, really, this has quite a regular formal um, mm-hmm. shape to it. And that slow kind of procession um, is what I was hoping to achieve here and, and, um, I, I, I think it works okay. The, the issue with form, of course, is that as soon as you start to begin to 
understand what form a poem should take, you begin, you then switch to beginning to impose a form upon the poem. And that has all sorts of um, consequences um, in terms of, um, you know, making you look more closely at whether a particular line is, is doing the work that it should be doing, whether it, it should not be there at all. Um, yeah. The risk with form is, and, and, and one finds this in, in, in poetry workshops um, a great deal, of course, is people filling out the form um, <laughs> <laughs> with, with unnecessaries. <laughs> yeah, got to fill it um, in a here, over here a bit. Exactly. And yeah, then it will yeah. be done. Yeah. But hopefully that's not the case here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, absolutely not here. The other thing that um, is typical of, of of my work sort of at, at the moment really is is a almost complete absence of punctuation um just a few um long dashes to give sort of hesitation and pause and, and so on and that again I've, I've been working on that um i remember reading the the great american poet who died in the last couple of years really um ws merwin Mm-hmm. And around the 19, late 1960s, I think it was, he abandoned punctuation completely. And it, it was something I'd been trying to experiment with. This was probably perhaps 10 years ago now. Um, um, but he, he sort of gave me permission <laughs> to, yeah. to really try. And, and it, it, again, it's to do with what I've already mentioned, really, I, I want a kind of fluidity of vision, a rather mm-hmm. grand word, but I, I think that that's the word I would use, um, rather than a, a, a compartmentalized, um, restrictive uh, flow to the poem. So I'm trying to use the black of the print against the white of the page mm-hmm. to... Um, suggest how the poem may be read. But that fluidity, again, is is what I'm after. Yeah, there is a nice combination of that regularity, as you say, but also the fluidity. You know, so if if you're listening to this, do go and have a look on the website, amouthfulofair.fm, and you'll see every, you've got three-line stanzas, each one indented quite strongly. So it's like three steps leading down. But that absence of punctuation and capitalization and full stops, you also got quite a lot of very skillful use of line breaks. It, it really feels like you're stepping lightly from line to line and stanza to stanza. I, I hope that would be the feeling. And I, I, I think I'm stepping down into the chilly, cold waters of, of Ullswater at, at Silver mm-hmm. Bay. Um, balancing tentatively in an improvisational way on those little rocks and pebbles and cobblestones. And I, I, I hope the poem feels a little bit like that, yeah. Yeah, it does. So, so maybe this would be a nice point for us to go down by the, the side of Silver Bay and join you there and listen <laughs> to the poem again. So thank you very much, Martin. Thank you, Mark. Pleasure. Thank you.
You are not in search of by Martin Crucifix. There has to be a sort of killing Tom Rowling. You're not in search of a gilded meadow, though here's a place you might hope to find it. The locals point you to Silver Bay, to a curving shingled beach where once I crouched, as if breathless, as if I'd followed a trail of scuffs and disappointments. And the wind swept in, as it usually does, and the lake water brimmed, and I knew the thrill of its mongrel plenitude as colours of thousands of pebbles like bright cobblestones slid uneasily beneath my feet. Imagine, it's here, I want you to leave me, these millions of us aspiring to the condition of ubiquitous dust on the fiery water one moment, then dust in the water the next, then there's barely a handful of dust compounding with the brightness of water, then near as damn it, gone. You might say this aloud, by way of ritual. There goes one who thought much of life, who found joy in return for a little gratitude before its frugal bowls of iron and bronze set out, then vanished. Then, however you try to look me up, whatever device you click or tap or swipe, I'm neither here nor there. Though you might imagine one particle in some stiff hybrid blade of grass or some vigorous weed arched towards the sun. Though here is as good a place as any, you look for me in vain, the bridges down. You Are Not In Search Of by Martin Crucifix is from his latest collection, Between a Drowning Man, published by Salt. Martin Crucifix is a poet, critic and translator. Cargo of Limbs, his longer poem on the plight of refugees crossing the Mediterranean, appeared with Hercules Editions in 2019, accompanied by photographs by Amal Alzakut. These Numbered Days, translations of poems from the German of Peter Huchel, published by Shearsman Books, won the 2020 schlegel Tiek Translation Prize. Martin's selected translations from across Rilke's career is due from Pushkin Press in 2024 under the title Change Your Life. Martin is a Royal Literary Fund Fellow at the British Library and blogs regularly at martincrucifix.com. And that's Martin with a Y. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. A new episode is released every month. If you enjoy the show and you would like to help me connect more poets with listeners and readers, you can contribute to the show's production costs at amouthfulofair.fm support.
you can also support our poets and publishers as well as the podcast by buying their books in the A Mouthful of Air bookshop at amouthfulofair.fm slash bookshop. And if you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with music by Javier Whaler, sound production by Breaking Waves, and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.